Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. I want to thank you all for coming this evening. My name is Jim Doty. Uh, I'm the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, which is part of the School of Medicine here at Stanford. My day job is I'm a professor of neurosurgery here, uh, and that does take up a little bit of my time. Um, one of our missions uh, is to uh, study uh, through neuroscience, psychology, compassion and altruism, as well as empathy. What we have found out, and the reason I believe this is so powerful, is the work of our, us here and at other institutions has shown how profoundly compassion has an effect on your physiology in a positive way. But this is not only compassion for others, it's compassion for yourself as well. And uh, so part of what we do is research-based. Then we have a wonderful compassion cultivation training program. How many of you have taken that course? Wow. Um, which is now taught all over the world. And we just finished, uh, I think this week, uh, the uh, nine-month uh, compassion cultivation teacher training program, uh, which is exciting. And this sort of populates the world with people who are promoting this work and uh, uh, teaching people uh, how to cultivate compassion within themselves. In addition, we have a lecture series uh, where we invite academics typically to speak about their own research. And then one of the things that actually I enjoy probably the most, which often is science-based but frequently is not, is this event, which is uh, conversations on compassion. And for those of you who have attended these, or maybe have not attended many. We have had the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, Amma, the Hugging Saint, uh, Eckhart Tolle, um, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, Sadhguru, um, as well as business people, Steve Luzow, the CEO of Seagate, uh, Scott Creens, the chairman of uh, Juniper Networks, as well as, how many of you know Anna Devere Smith? She's an actress, uh, and so all sorts of interesting folks. And the thing that ties all of that together is they have dedicated their lives to promoting compassion, studying compassion, and living compassion, hopefully. So tonight's guest is Shana Shapiro. She is a uh, psychologist as well as a professor at Santa Clara University. She is uh, world-renowned uh, for her work, research uh, related to mindfulness. She is also a best-selling author, uh, and she has a new book, which I'm going to plug. When is it being released? January. In January, called Good Morning, I Love You, <laughs> and which I'm sure will be wonderful. Uh, she also had a, another book a wonderful book called The Art and Science of Mindfulness, and another book, which is, it's Mindful discipline. discipline, Raising a... Emotionally Intelligent Child. <laughs> yes, basically. Uh, uh, but all of these are wonderful books. She's published innumerable articles, and so it's, and her work has been really literally quoted around the world. 
I think we were last together in Toronto at the uh, Mindfulness Conference, which was wonderful, and we had a great time there. So without further ado, uh, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So one of the things that I typically do, uh, because who we are today is a manifestation of our past. That can be, of course, good, and it can be bad. Uh, Shauna has a, an extraordinary story, which I hopefully she will share with us, uh, about uh, how she came to mindfulness, if you will, and I think, if I recall correctly, it was in Thailand. Well, it actually started a little before Thailand. Um, when I was 17, I had major spinal surgery, so I had a metal rod put in my spine and couldn't walk for a long time and spent a lot of time in the hospital bed and um, and it was really during that time that I was kind of struggling to find ways of coping and luckily found mindfulness and so a couple years later when I was healed I went to Thailand and um, it's really interesting how, how many people are familiar with mindfulness okay so all of you so Mindfulness is often understood as about paying attention in the present moment, right? Be here now. And so when I went to Thailand, that was kind of my understanding of it, is that it was only about focusing attention. And when I got to the monastery, um, the monks didn't speak much English, and I didn't speak any Thai. So I focused on just paying attention. And they told me just to feel my breath going in and out. You might try it just in and out through your nose. And to use that to train my attention. And so I began. And what do you think I noticed? My mind wandered off, right? And so I'd try harder and it would wander again. And so I started judging myself because I was really frustrated. You know, I thought meditation was going to be this like peaceful, beautiful experience, right? <laughs> and instead my mind was going all over the place and I couldn't control it. So I'm sitting there judging myself and so frustrated. You know, you're a fake. Why are you here? What are you doing? And then I even started judging the monks around me. You know, what are they doing? Why, should, why are they sitting here doing they're nothing? They're fake. <laughs> yeah, they're faking. <laughs> they should be out in the world. Um, and then a monk from London came who spoke English. And as I shared with him my struggles and my frustration and my impatience, he looked at me and he said, oh, dear, you're not practicing mindfulness. You're practicing judgment, impatience, frustration. <laughs> and then he said five words that I've never forgotten. He said, what you practice grows stronger. What you practice grows stronger. We know this now with neuroplasticity, right? Our repeated experiences shape our brain. And so explain to me that if I was practicing mindfulness in a judgmental way, I was just growing judgment. If I'm practicing with frustration, I'm growing frustration. So he helped me understand that mindfulness isn't just about paying attention. It's about how you pay attention with an attitude of kindness and curiosity. And so when I came back to the States and I got my PhD and started studying mindfulness, I've really focused on these different elements of mindfulness. And it's been extraordinary because we've learned how powerful kindness is, right? It seems like kind of a, a weaker emotion or a softer emotion, compassion. And, and what we found is that it actually is what allows us to change that when we practice mindfulness in this kind, compassionate way, we, we turn on the learning centers of the brain and we actually prepare the brain, give it the resources it needs to change. 
And so for me, that's been kind of my work for many, many years is how do we, how do we marry mindfulness and compassion and bring it into our school systems, into the workplaces, into our families, into hospitals and wherever else it can be helpful. And, you know, and sometimes I talk about oftentimes many of us live a life of fear uh, and that drives us. Mm -hmm. It drives our decisions. It drives, unfortunately, relationships. Uh, and it's fear of being judged, it's fear of not being good enough. And what this is, is a bifurcation where you leave fear and you head towards love. And mm -hmm. this is love for yourself, but of course, uh, when you can love yourself, it's uh, much easier yeah. to give love to others. And I think there are two reasons why. One is, um, when you're self-critical, you have a tendency to be critical of everyone around you. And also, when you're able to give yourself love, you realize that everyone is suffering and they deserve love. Uh, but that's hard to get there. And it's certainly easy with your children or people you love. Sometimes. Uh, <laughs> you know, my wife said one time, she's fortunately not here, but she said, people call you Mr. Compassion. Well, you're an asshole. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> Uh, I've never heard that from my son. <laughs> yeah. I've heard it from my wife. Hopefully your son has not said that. Not but. asshole. <laughs> How old is he? No. Uh, but uh, anyway, and the point is, though, we're also imperfect. And uh, even in the best of circumstances, with all the efforts we make to try to improve ourselves to be self-aware, you know, life's not perfect. And we all have challenges. Uh, um, you know, that make us not perfect. But the point is, again, this is the lot of every one of us. And if you can still be kind to yourself, then uh, it's a lot easier. Mm -hmm. uh, so you were in Thailand, but and then you went, did you go to Nepal at that time or later? Uh, I went to Nepal then and then back to Thailand many times since then. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And are you going to Buddhist monasteries or are you teaching or... Well, I originally trained in Buddhist monasteries, and, and then I started training here in, in the West. So Jack Kornfield's been my teacher for, as you know, well, sure. for a long time. And so I spent, sometimes um, at the you know retreat centers here, I spent uh, two month-long retreats uh, with Jack. So we spent 30 days in silence studying and training, and I, I don't know if I recommend it or not. <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely do it before you have children. Um, and I think what, what came up for me over and over again is that even though I knew kind of scientifically the importance of compassion and the importance of self-compassion, practicing it was really challenging and, and continues to be. And I think, and I'm curious if, if you all feel the same way, but there's this kind of part of me that's worried that if I'm kind to myself or I, I'm compassionate, that I'll let myself off the hook and that I'll never change and I'll stay stuck in these patterns. And especially, I think, around my son where... That's where kind of, you know, my greatest love and also my greatest challenges are and this sense of like not being a good enough mom and then just, you know, this kind of beating yourself up about it and kind of spiraling into shame. And what I'm learning slowly, you know, one day at a time is, is that when I beat myself up, when I shame myself, it doesn't help him. And that if I can bring kindness to myself and see these patterns clearly, then I can bring that energy and love to him. And I think, you know, for me, that's one of the most important things that, that in these teachings and in my research is that 
shame doesn't work. It doesn't help us change. And so we all have these misgivings of self-compassion, like it's going to make you lazy or not motivated or you're going to lose your edge. But what the science shows is it's the exact opposite. It's kind of the surprising truth of self-compassion that it increases motivation. It increases, I mean, instead of becoming lazy, people work out more, they eat healthier, they, they have better lifestyle choices. And so what I like to share with people is really the science because I think you can tell people it all starts with self-love and they roll their eyes, right? So I usually go in with the science and, and, then, and then there's practice. You know, practice, for me at least, practice is the most important thing. And we're practicing all the time. We're not just talking about going off to meditation retreats or going to monasteries. I'm talking about right now, noticing where your mind is, right? Noticing the quality of your attention, noticing your attitude, right? Are you curious? Are you open? Are you judging? Are you excited? And then we don't even judge that. You know, it's, it's, it's all welcome. You know, one of the things I do, and uh, you know, uh, I'm a neurosurgeon, and my job can occasionally be stressful. Uh, <laughs> But I find that what I try to do is, if I'm having a particularly stressful moment, that's actually a wonderful reminder to just step back for a minute or two, and again, focus on your breath, and sort of get back into that space where you're trying to live your intention. Hmm. And uh, I think that you can also, if you want to, I think, get into this, you also try to, every effort you make is to sort of be in that place, hopefully, and always uh, uh, try to stay there without getting lost in your negative uh, self-talk sometimes. Um, maybe you can, you mentioned Buddhist uh, monasteries, and I think <clears throat> what we call mindfulness in the West comes from those practices, but one person's mindfulness may be different from another person's. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can just give us the working definition yeah. that you use, and maybe even from your perspective, the history of mindfulness in the yeah. West. Sure, well, I really appreciate it. You brought up the word intention because intention is fundamental to mindfulness. Um, intention is really knowing what your purpose is, why you're doing what you're doing. And with regard to mindfulness, intention has to do with why you pay attention, right? Attention is our most valuable commodity. It's the most important resource we have. And so really being clear on where you want to put your energy, your attention, your focus is essential. So mindfulness has three core elements. Intention, right? Knowing why you pay attention. Attention, focusing your attention in the present moment. And then your attitude, this attitude of kindness. And so these three elements cut across all culture, all religion, and even though I was trained in, in a Buddhist tradition, and even though a lot of mindfulness stems from it, mindfulness can be found in every single one of the wisdom traditions, in every single religion, because it's about being present, being kind, and, and having these values of compassion. And so when we teach mindfulness in the West, I think it's really important for people to understand that this is not a Buddhist practice and it's not limited to that. You know, in fact, a lot of, I worked um, at the cancer center for five years and I worked mostly with women with breast cancer and a lot of the women were elderly women, very, very devout Christians. And when they found out that as we were teaching them mindfulness, there was a little bit of a, what? <laughs> and one of the most beautiful things that um, someone shared with me is she said, Mindfulness has deepened my connection to God 
and taught me how to pray, right? So that it's, it's woven into all the great religions. I mean, Thomas Merton and Father Keating, and there, there's so many incredible inspirations. And so mindfulness is just a human capacity, right? It's paying attention with kindness and curiosity um, every moment. I was fortunate before Father Keating died, and he was uh, sometimes called the father of centered, centered prayer movement. Right. And uh, uh, I think when I was with him, he was 90 or so. And it was really quite extraordinary because there is this tradition that's, I think, found in almost every religion. And uh, how many of you know Karen Armstrong? Some, most of you say Karen, right? Don't say that to Karen. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's Karen. <laughs> and actually, uh, Karen has been a guest of ours, and she's a dear friend. Uh, she founded something called the uh, Charter for Compassion. But uh, she, got, she won the TED Prize in 08, and um, as part of that, she started the Charter for Compassion, and she got 19 spiritual uh, and religious leaders together and, uh, to see where is the common ground. And the common ground was compassion and uh, the golden rule. And in fact, I had the joy of being the vice chairman of the Charter for Compassion for many years, and have traveled with uh, Karen uh, uh, in different places in the world. But that's really true. And, and when we look at the evolution of our species, uh, you know, why is it that compassion or our response to suffering uh, is there? And maybe you can just give us your views on that, or I can give my views. <laughs> Um, I'd love to hear your views, but I—I <laughs> I, I mean, I think compassion. You know, Dacher Keltner wrote that great book, oh. *Born to Be Good*, and what he shows is that we've evolved because we're compassionate. You know, it's the compassionate people that survived, that took care of each other, and that were kind of hardwired for compassion. Even though you know, sometimes we think we're not, and we we get kind of lost in our sense of isolation and individual kind of self that um, what all these practices do is remind us that we're connected and remind us that compassion compassion is just what makes sense. I mean, the way I like to think of it is it's not this kind of top-down moral thing that you should do the right thing. The way I think it's more powerful is when it's kind of a bottom-up, like an experience where you start to recognize we're all connected. You know, if, if I had a splinter in my left hand, what would my right hand do? Take it out. And my left hand wouldn't say, oh my God, you're so generous, you're so compassionate, thank you. It just, it just knows I'm part of the same body. Of course I do that. And that's how compassion is. It, it just makes sense when you see it that clearly. I think if you look at the evolution of our species particularly, but you find it in, in uh, a number, and I won't say higher mammals, and I certainly won't say humans are the highest expression of evolution, because I wonder sometimes based on the news. Uh, uh, but that being said, you know, to have these characteristics that do in some way separate us from other mammals, theory of mind, abstract thinking, uh, complex language, uh, it required, unlike other species or many species, that our offspring don't swim away, they don't run into the forest, and are completely independent and functional. We actually have to take care of our offspring for 10, 15 years, in my case, 37 years. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, but, and that is because our children's behaviors are modeled off of our behaviors. That's how they learn. 
And uh, this is this concept of mirror neurons, although that theory can be debated and I won't go down that path right now. But uh, so the other aspect of this is the cost in terms of resources and energy to care for our offspring is immense. And you could sit there and say, why would you do that? And one of the reasons is because when you care, when you love, you're rewarded. And this is where oxytocin and other neurotransmitters in our nurturing pathways uh, occur. And these are associated with our pleasure and reward centers. We did a study here using optogenetics. Do any of you know what that is? Some of you maybe. Uh, so uh, we actually, and this is a technique where you can actually put um, in uh, neurons certain uh, that are along certain pathways, uh, these uh, molecules that will actually turn on and off the neuron in certain wavelengths of light. And, uh, and you put a single uh, fiber optic cable in, this, in the region of this pathway and you turn on a wavelength of light and it can turn on or off the neuron. And the interesting thing is to show you how this works is that in this rodent model, uh, in a male who is quite territorial, if we were to put another male in his space, uh, he would of course demonstrate aggressive behavior, right? Which is natural. If we were to turn on his nurturing pathways, then he starts exhibiting the characteristics of showing interest He's sniffing and not attacking. And also in the context of um, a mother who's had a, a recent litter of pups, there's a certain technique where if you distribute them throughout the cage, there's a time period where she will collect them and bring them back. If you turn off her nurturing pathway, she abandons them. And so this is really how powerful these connections are, and they've been with us, and they're present, of course, in other uh, mammals as well. And so the other aspect, I think, is uh, also our ability to intuit uh, uh, people's emotional states through microfacial expressions, through body habitus, sometimes through smell, sometimes through vocalization or tonation. And it's interesting because I bet you if your partner or loved one or somebody you cared about walks into a room, they don't have to say a word and you have a sense of their emotional state. And that can be for good or bad, of course. Uh, so now, so we talked about the definition of mindfulness. And uh, of course, many of us are familiar with mindfulness-based stress reduction, which I think uh, I'll know that John Kabat-Zinn popularized that. In fact, sort of brought, he'll tell you, the Dharma to the West, I think, uh, sometimes. Um, I've had discussions with him, and I'd be interested in your opinion, because, and we're talking about mindfulness, I have argued that it does not overtly promote compassion, mm -hmm. and I think that could be a limitation. His argument to me is, you should do a 10-day retreat with me. But, <laughs> but uh, what do you think about that? It's a really interesting question. So, you know, Kristen Neff and John Kabat-Zinn and I all did a conference about this. And John was kind of on one side and Kristen was kind of on the other side. And I was in the middle. <laughs> um, and what I'd say is I'm kind of in the middle. 
is I, I actually do believe that practicing mindfulness, especially the way that I define it with this practice of compassion woven into the attitude, yes. is, does cultivate compassion. And in fact, in all the research I've done, people's scores on compassion and self-compassion go up when I just teach straight mindfulness. However, when you teach compassion and self-compassion, it goes up more, which makes sense. You know, if you go to the gym and you work out certain muscles, those are the ones that are gonna grow. And so you might have kind of an overall body health, but then you have specific practices that, that are targeting other things. And I, I don't think they're separate. I actually think mindfulness and compassion need to go together. You know, you need to be able to focus your attention and be present in order to see suffering and want to alleviate it. And I think what compassion does is mindfulness can get really cold. Mindfulness can get very distant and you're kind of like witnessing everything as you go through life. And compassion adds that warmth to it so that I think of it as like a camera and you have like a wide angle lens and that's mindfulness where you can like get that witness perspective and not get too enmeshed. And then you have that zoom lens where you can go right into it and actually feel the intimacy of your present experience. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I've spoken to some hedge fund managers who are very mindful about making money. Uh, and, but they're not compassionate. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the dangers mm -hmm. is that without, I think, the explicit side of it, and actually uh, our compassion cultivation training has those four parts, which the third and the fourth, I think, are the self-compassion mm -hmm. and then compassion for others. And I think that is the strength of it. I call it mindfulness plus. Uh, but um, I think that's right because I have met some very ruthless people who brag about their ability to stay focused when they're making money or doing other activities, which I would not promote necessarily. Uh, uh, and it can create a selfishness. Mm -hmm. And unless you really focus on this other aspect and become more self-aware. Now, I think the good news is, and we were talking about this a little earlier, I uh, was uh, moderating a panel at something called the um, Milken Global Conference. Have any of you heard of this? So it's, remember Michael Milken, he was the, uh, yeah. <laughs> he went to jail, he paid a huge fine. He was still left with a billion dollars or so, so don't feel too bad for Michael. Uh, but he held, he's still a very powerful player internationally. And he has this conference where he brings people together and, and they focus on a number of topics. They focus on cybersecurity, they focus on uh, Bitcoin, they focus on uh, a whole variety of areas in finance. But interestingly, they have now recognized some of these issues of stress, anxiety, and depression, this epidemic that we're having that uh, is affecting schools, uh, the healthcare uh, environment, uh, businesses, and they may look at it more pragmatically in how much is it costing me as a business, but uh, they're looking at this, and we did a panel on actually mindfulness. And imagine sitting in front of this type of group of people, and I'm talking about fear and love and opening your heart, right? Uh, now, but the amazing thing is, subsequent to that conference, I got tons of emails from people who are themselves suffering in these types of environment. So I think that there's becoming more and more awareness of this because uh, you know, I think we're having an epidemic in, in all sorts of areas, and maybe you could just 
give me your thoughts mm -hmm. and as to maybe why. Uh, and yeah, well, if you, you made a few really important points. I mean, one is the concern that mindfulness is being coming commodified and that it's being used as like you know, a weapon to make money and, you know, it's even being used in the military actually to train our soldiers. And, and I think there are concerns and I think that helping people come into the present moment and become more self-aware is only for the benefit. Um, and I, you know, it's interesting because one of the studies that we recently did was with college freshmen and we are interested in increasing their ethical decision-making and ethical behaviors. And so, the idea was if you just practice mindfulness, but you don't teach them about ethics, you don't teach them not to drink and drive, you don't teach them that maybe they won't learn that because you're just teaching them about paying attention. So we had one group that was just a mindfulness course, which I taught, and then we had one group that was an education that taught them you know, about what are ethical decisions. So we learned a couple things. Um, the first thing, this was at Santa Clara University, a Jesuit university. The first thing we learned is that college freshmen are unethical. <laughs> they, they, they drink and drive, they cheat, they have unsafe sex, and I mean, my provost was horrified at my research. He was like, well, you know, God, you can't publish this. But what was interesting... Except anonymously. <laughs> anonymously. Yes. At Stanford. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, I would assure you it's worse here. Quite possibly. Because so, we have no ethical moral framework here. <laughs> so so we, we did the study. And what was interesting is that, so in the, in the education group, we talked to them about the dangers of drinking and driving or the dangers of the unsafe sex. In, in my class, we never talked about it. I just taught them how do you pay attention with kindness and curiosity to what your behaviors are and what the consequences are, and keep listening, keep listening. And what we found after eight weeks is that the mindfulness course had significantly better ethical decision making than the other course, yeah. which was surprising because you would think you would have to be specific. And so for me, that lends a bit of support to saying, this practice is powerful and it will lead to wisdom. And I think wisdom leads to compassion. I think it maybe is a slower route. And so I always teach both. So I'll teach, you know, metta, loving kindness and compassion practices. And then I also teach mindfulness. And I think they go well together. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, I, but I do, I'm very committed to, to both the science and the practice of, of understanding mindfulness as a whole package and not just as an attentional skill. Um, I'll give you an interesting example. I, I have spoken over at the business school on occasion and I give two examples of your options as far as a, a um, choice. And one is you spend X amount of money, you can acquire this company and you can take their pension plan, you can uh, result in unemployment for 10,000 people and you'll make X. And, or you can do this other way where you keep everybody employed but you're only making about a fourth of the profits and uh, which are you going to make? And you know what the primary question is sadly is, is the other illegal? It's not moral, ethical, it's what can I do and it's very sad, right? Because, and I have to tell you, I have spoken to many, many extraordinarily wealthy people, and this is not an uncommon, and you sit there and you go, well, why is it that we have these people in leadership positions running finance, et cetera, et cetera? And I think 
those people are rewarded for that type of behavior, right? And, but I think, unfortunately, what's happening is, as we see the disparity between the haves and the have-nots and the destruction of the middle class, uh, it's not a, this type of capitalism isn't sustainable. And in fact, this epidemic of stress, anxiety, and depression is a manifestation of these types of behaviors. And maybe mm -hmm. you can give me your thoughts on yeah. that. I'm not I, trying to I, put you No, in no, I, I think it's what I, I mean, I think the, the epidemic that we're seeing of depression, anxiety, um, suicide, I mean, especially in our teenagers and our, in our children, um, has a lot to do with this individualistic mentality where we see ourselves as separate. And what that leads to is choices like the one you're talking about, but it also leads to a tremendous amount of depression. People feel alone. People feel lonely. They feel isolated. The number one cause of death of all causes above smoking and obesity is loneliness across every single disease. Three to five times greater risk of death. And so I think what we're seeing is an epidemic of loneliness where we've lost, we've lost our religion, we've lost our communities, we've lost um, really the art of intimacy, of being present. You know, we have, we have these phones everywhere we go. And I mean, research shows that even just having the phone out on the table. Wait, you had to say that. I did, and it's not even turned over. I saw you got a text. Oh. Um, even just having it oh, on the I, table. Can you stop for a second? <laughs> right, but, but, but even having it on the table, what they show is that both parties rate the, the, the conversation as less intimate. And they didn't even know that they were being rated versus the phone out or not out. You know, when you see these videos of these mothers on their phone and the kid, you know, begging, kind of bidding for attention, it's just like, wait, wait, wait. And I'm sure I've been guilty of it. And so I think it's about not shaming ourselves, not judging ourselves, but seeing clearly and holding all of it with a lot of compassion. And thank you for pointing that out. And I have to tell you this story. How many of you know Diane Sawyer? Reporter? Oh, right. So I'm having dinner with Diane Sawyer, and I'm not name dropping, but maybe I am. But but so, so, so I'm having dinner with Diane Sawyer in New York a few weeks ago, and we're having dinner, and my phone's like this. And you know, I have I, I'm supposed to be actually someone else somewhere else, but I'm having such a great time with Diane Sawyer, and and then I get a, a my phone buzzes. I go shit, and but these people are waiting for me, so I pick up my phone, I look at it, and I lay it down, and then it buzzes again. So I pick it up, and then I turn it off. And she goes, uh, you know what I'm working on right now? <laughs> it just came out. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it just, yeah, I just saw it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> she goes, uh, she said the exact same statistic. She's, and people think you're less trustworthy. Mm -hmm. I'm going, oh. <laughs> and now I've just been like smacked by Diane Sawyer, you know what I mean? And, uh, but uh, actually, it, we, we actually had a fun uh, uh, chat over that. And then she hit, sent me an email that said, basically, I hope you didn't get mad at me for that. But uh, she was co absolutely correct. And, uh, and obviously, I did not take her lesson well. But now that I've been shamed twice, I... <laughs> not uh, shamed, no, no, not I, shamed. No, I, I'm just kidding. Not shamed. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, but it is... It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely true. So it's so See, funny you brought that up. But if I was shaming you right now, then the learning centers of your brain would shut down. They'd go into survival pathways because you'd be like, oh my God, in front of everyone. And you actually would probably do it again. So because I'm being so kind and compassionate about it, you're going to learn this time <laughs> and next time. Now I want you to happen. know we practiced this for a couple hours <laughs> but, but before we got together here. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I, I think that's uh, uh, 
That's really true. Um, now I'm like so discombobulated. <laughs> I'm so shamed. Uh, uh, but actually, speaking of shame, uh, so many of us carry shame with us, right? How many of you at times carry shame? I won't put you all on the spot, but, you know, and, and it's also negative self-talk, right? How many of you have negative self-talk? You know, I was giving this talk in L.A. with these guys, and I said, how many of you have negative self-talk? And of course, these guys, and I said, those of you who don't raise your hand, you're lying. You're absolutely lying. And, and I think that's true. And, and unfortunately, the nature of modern society is that we feel we're being judged. And, and, and that if we don't live up to something uh, that people expect of us, and then we all have the shadow or dark side. And, and one of the things that creates challenges for us is that we're always trying to push the shame, the dark side away, but until you can integrate it into who you are and still love yourself and feel you're deserving of love, it's always going to be a challenge. Um, maybe I can ask your thoughts on this. Um, as part of that conference, there was actually a conference that Tim Ferriss moderated a panel, and it was on psychedelics in the mm -hmm. context of... Uh, dealing with some of these issues of depression or anxiety. One of the conversations was on using uh, LSD, microdosing LSD. And for those of you who may not be aware, and Silicon Valley is no different than Hollywood, where there are fads that happen and everybody gets into it and uh, uh, the celebrities of Silicon Valley promote it. But maybe you can give me your thoughts on that. Hmm. Yeah. So I just spoke at the Integrative Mental Health Conference with Michael Pollan and Andrew Weil. So I've been immersed in this. And it's interesting because you're talking about shame and negative self-talk. And one of the things that the psychedelics have been shown to do is, in many senses, give you a sense of unconditional love, of unconditional acceptance. And I'm not promoting them or saying they're bad, but what I think we all are yearning for, what we long for, is this sense of belonging, the sense that I belong to you, that we belong to each other. And that unconditional love, I think there's many different ways to find it. I, I know that my grandparents, that's where I learned it. And I'm so grateful because they, they created a pathway inside of me from an early age of feeling loved and accepted no matter what. And there's many other areas of my life where I didn't feel that way, um, but I, I recognize it. And so I think one of the things that the psychedelics do, and especially, you know, you guys are doing research at Stanford with MDMA and post-traumatic stress disorder, is that they create that environment of unconditional love where then you can go into trauma. You can look at those parts that you're ashamed of or those huge fears, and um, you have the space to do it. And I, I really believe in order for us to heal, both individually and collectively, we have to have the courage and the compassion and the wisdom to look at those dark parts. They're not just going to go away. No, exactly. And uh, I think psychedelics can do that uh, uh, for you. Um, and, and so can just loving relationships. So can just intimacy, just right in the present moment. And I think part of self-compassion and self-love is an individual journey. But I'm also learning it has so much to do with, with being retaught your own loveliness. You know, there's that beautiful poem by Galway Cannell, and he says, um, he says, the bud stands for all things, even those things that do not flower. 
for everything flowers from within of self-blessing. But he said, sometimes we need to reteach a thing its loveliness. We need to tell it in words and in touch it's lovely so that it can flower again from within. And I think that's what we do. I, I'm a clinical psychologist and I feel like that's what I do with my patients is just say, I see you and you're beautiful and you deserve love. And when you find someone or many people in your life that see you that way, you start to see yourself that way. It starts to, you, you reteach each other your own loveliness and, and it's vulnerable and it's tender and it's the most healing thing in the world. How many of you are familiar with Blue Zones? These are these places, of course, where you live over a century. And I think, well, there's a lot of talk about diet. Uh, in some of those environments, they smoke and they drink. But the thing that is always consistently there is community and acceptance. And, uh, and stairs. They walk up lots and, of stairs. And, sta <laughs> and hills, hills. Uh, uh, but uh, the point I'm making is that when you have been in an environment that's intergenerational, where you have neighbors who've known you your entire life, and they've seen you naked, uh, they've seen you at your best, they've seen you at your worst, and in every instance, they embrace you. And that is connection, and that is what stimulates us uh, to have our best uh, physiology, uh, f f physiology or physiologic response. Because we are made to receive that and we're made to give that. And I think that is the challenge of modern society because what happens in an environment like this or, or others, uh, many people don't feel comfortable showing their vulnerability, showing their pain, or showing their true selves. So what do we do in that situation? We go around and we carry a projection of how we want people to see us. It doesn't show the flaws. We don't want people to know that we're suffering, we're in pain, we're having difficulty. And when you cannot show that vulnerability, you cannot truly connect. And you cannot get all the wonderful benefits of connection. And in fact, you know, <clears throat> for those of you who've come to events I've done, I will periodically tear up or whatever. <laughs> but every time I do that, I just look at the audience and everybody, <laughs> right? And the reason is because all of us want to be like that. We all want to be given permission to love, to care, to be vulnerable. And as soon as you do that, your physiology shifts and you're not fearful, you feel loved. And this is why, you know, people say, and I know you've been in the presence of His Holiness and other spiritual and religious leaders, when you're in the presence of an evolved spiritual leader or religious leader, you, this projection goes away and you're just filled with love and joy. And it's the most extraordinary thing in the world. And you can see why people chase after these people and want to be in proximity because you just feel elevated, you feel liberated, you feel released. And it's an incredible joy to be like that. And the extraordinary thing, I think, is that each of us has the capacity to give that gift to other people. Mm -hmm. But like you were saying, yeah. it takes practice. I was going to say, I mean, that's how I feel around my partner every single second, is how you described with the Dalai Lama, that sense of total 
unconditional acceptance. And then it does it, it brings out the best in you. And I think, um, I think for me, the, the real beauty of this path is that you can begin again in any moment. You know, that I've had a lot of, of trauma in my life and a lot of um, challenges in relationships. And I think the, the beauty is that it's never too late, right? That you, no matter what your past, no matter what your circumstances, you can begin again. And that's really what neuroscience and neuroplasticity is teaching us, is, is that we can create new pathways. We have choice. We can pivot in any moment out of the kind of negative talk or the shame or the negative pathways, and we can grow these new pathways. And it takes time, and it takes effort, and it takes a lot of courage, but it's possible for everyone. And there's a wonderful quote from Kabir. He says, wherever you are is the entry point. Right here, wherever you are, you start right now. And just so hopeful. No, I, I think that's uh, exactly right. And, and, you know, the challenge, though, for each of us is to believe it. Right? And I think that so many of us live with this burden of negative self-talk or a burden that we've carried since childhood. And, you know, this is the power of words sometimes, right? Somebody has told you something and you have believed it. Mm -hmm. And when, you, when that happens, <clears throat> you have given your power away. And I think <clears throat> to regain your power, you have to understand how powerful you really are, but you have to truly believe that. And as soon as you sense that, everything starts changing for you. You know, I was giving a talk to a group of nurses, actually, and we were talking about some of these issues, and this woman stood up and she was just in tears. <clears throat> and she said, <clears throat> and the woman was in her 50s. She said, my father told me I would be nothing. Nothing, that I would, I, I would never be anything. And you know, so this woman, her whole life, she's 50 now, she's telling this story, because that's still sitting there. Right? <laughs> and so she gave her power away to her father, and that image and that story, her whole life. Yet imagine, instead of that narrative, her father said to her, I love you, you can do anything. How do you think she would be telling that story, right? And we have to be careful because people around us listen to our words and they have power. So I would tell you, hopefully, to think about this because oftentimes one of these statements will sit with somebody their whole life. Yet if you phrase it the other way, that is a joyous, wonderful gift that you've given to someone. Um, the other thing that I just want to mention and, and maybe you can comment on is Victor Frankl, how many of you have read Victor Frankl? We have all these educated, smart, self-aware people. Uh, 
this idea of stimulus and response, and maybe you can comment on that and sort of talk about how that can change things. Yeah, well first, I just appreciate, I mean, I appreciate your sharing and the depth of your, you can feel your heart, and it's rare to feel that in a neurosurgeon, so. Um, <laughs> but um, I just I thought you were appreciate. gonna make a misogynist statement and say, no. in a man. No, no, I have a lot of love and respect for men. Just not neurosurgeons. <laughs> <laughs> Is that who operated on you? <laughs> um, I, it's, Victor Frankl has been really um, influential in my life. And it was interesting. I was giving a talk yesterday in Chicago um, at a school at Francis Parker. And we were talking about that beautiful quote that Victor Frankl has is, between the stimulus and response, there is a pause. And in that pause is the freedom to choose our response. And, and in that freedom lies our joy and our happiness. And so I think part of what mindfulness does is it creates that space. Where instead of just automatically reacting like we normally do, we, we actually can pause and, and reconnect with what's my intention, right? And in what direction do I want to set the compass of my heart? How do I want to live? And, and, and that's really the power of mindfulness for me, is, is that each moment you, you continue to choose. Because I think everyone can change. I think the reason people don't change, because I can't argue with the literature, a lot of people don't change. I think it's because they keep practicing the same pathway. And it's just they're grooving it over and over again. And if you just had that moment of pause and clarity and went this way, you could carve out a different neural pathway. No, I think that's exactly right. And I I think that, but you do have to remain mindful and think about that. and I think this is the other aspect of the stimulus and response, though, is that understanding that when people react negatively, uh, um, oftentimes we perceive it, though, that they're attacking us. And sometimes it has nothing to do with us. Mm-hmm. You see, people can be primed from an argument with their partner. They can be primed from some event at work. And then when they interact with us, what is our typical reaction when somebody comes on aggressive to us? You know, we have a tendency to respond aggressively back. But if you step back and you look at this, you suddenly are more kind, more sympathetic, and actually query them as to what is really bothering you. And sometimes if you take that time you can be profoundly shocked and surprised yeah. by what's really going on because what we think is going on, what our body reacts to, is not necessarily what's yeah. going on uh, at all. There's a, there's a, a, a beautiful story about that. Um, you know, mindfulness, as I've shared, has recently entered the military. And there's um, a, a high-ranking officer who was kind of mandated to go to a mindfulness program to deal with his anger management issues. And he was a bit resistant at first, as you might expect, but about a month into the course, he really started practicing in earnest. And a bit later, he shared this story. Um, He said he was at the grocery store with a cart full of groceries. And just as he was about to get in the checkout lane, this elderly woman with a young baby girl steps in front of him. And she only had one thing in her hand, and there was the express lane right to his right completely empty. And he starts getting frustrated, like, why the hell is she in my lane and not the express lane? You know, he's in the military. He likes people to be in their right lines. And so then he practices his mindfulness and he kind of calms himself down a little bit. 
And he looks up again and he notices that this woman and the checkout clerk are like cooing and awing over the baby. And all of a sudden the woman hands the baby to the checkout lady for a hug. And he's like, are you kidding? He almost explodes in anger. He's like, is this a nursery? But then again, he remembers his mindfulness and he kind of calms himself down. Right? He was working on anger management issues. And as he calms himself down, he sees that the little baby girl is pretty cute. So an instant later, she's back in the arms of the woman. They walk out the door and the young checkout clerk is, is ringing him up. And he says, that little girl was, was cute. And she looks up and she says, wow, thank you. That, that is my daughter. Um, my husband died in Afghanistan last year. So I had to go back to work. And my mom brings her through my lane every day so I can hug her. And you can feel in that moment how everything changes. Right? You can feel how grateful he was that there was that pause between the anger and his reaction where he could see clearly and, and respond compassionately. And, and that's the thing is we have no idea. We have no idea what's happening in anyone's life. And, and most of us, not even most of us, all of us have pain. All of us have suffered. All of us have been betrayed or have disappointments. And so when those things happen, to pause and to reconnect with that common humanity. No, I think that's, that's right. And I think that's what these practices teach you. And this was a perfect example of, uh, of that, is that uh, we never really know what's going on for sure, just like people don't know what's going on with us. Um, um, We're getting a stimulus. Like, We're getting a stimulus and we responding. You look like Vanna, Vanna White. <laughs> She's pointing to the clock here. Um, the other thing I was going to mention uh, is that oftentimes, when we have a memory, a negative memory, we think that's reality. And we carry this. And, and the bad thing, of course, is that when you think of that memory, it brings up this negative emotional state. And one of the things that I think is powerful is thinking about an event as a black and white picture. And each of us, prior to processing that black and white picture in the memory, we actually color it. And we color it with our emotions. And every time we bring up the memory, we're looking at the color picture. We're not looking at the event. And the other person typically involved has their own somewhat slightly different colored picture. And when we learn to understand that reality, that's another gift in my own circumstance, and I mentioned my own uh, challenges growing up, I would create all these negative memories, but the events were just events. But because I painted them with, with negativity oftentimes and carried that, and we were talking about earlier how we have the ability to intuit emotional states of others. You know, if you're carrying anger, if you're carrying hostility, if you're carrying aggressiveness, People respond to that. And I say that when you're able to let go of that, when you're able to understand these are just events and it's okay and you're not carrying that, then people look at you a completely different way. And what I say is in my own circumstance, and this is 
what a woman taught me at the age of 12, how to deal with my own anger and despair and sense of hopelessness, is that she taught me to see an event as an event. And so then I no longer carried that. And even though my personal circumstance did not change one iota after being with this woman, how I reacted to the circumstance changed. And when I changed how I reacted, the world changed how it reacted to me. Beautiful, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're going to have about 10 minutes of questions to uh, Shauna, or if you want to ask me a question, I'll ask. Um, but uh, so were, are there any questions? And what I'd like to ask you to do, if you do have a question, to come up to the microphone, because uh, people like to actually watch these. And sometimes if you're sitting in the audience and I don't repeat it, they don't necessarily hear the question. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for a great conversation. Uh, you mentioned the importance of mindfulness and compassion together. I was wondering what your thoughts were if mindfulness helped preclude the likelihood of compassion fatigue. Mm, that's such a great question. Thank you for that. We were actually talking about it earlier. Do, do you need me to repeat it? So, so he asked, um, he said, mindfulness and compassion are such a wonderful kind of in, in combination. Could this help reduce compassion fatigue? And so a couple things, because I'm really interested in compassion fatigue. In fact, I've spent a lot of my career studying mental health professionals, doctors, nurses, and burnout. And so we've learned a couple of things just recently, and we were talking about this just before the talk, that Tanya Singer and her lab in Switzerland and in Germany have, have shown that compassion and empathy look very different in the brain. So compassion actually fills us with positive emotions. It lights up our reward center because we're caring about someone. We're saying, I want your suffering, I want to help you. Empathy lights up the pain centers, right? You see someone stub their toe and you're like, oh, ow, right? So it lights up the pain centers. So compassion fatigue is actually a misnomer. It should be called empathy fatigue. You can't get tired from too much compassion. It is filling you up with love. So empathy is the gateway for compassion. We need to understand someone's suffering. And then what we need to learn how to do, and this is why your work is so important, is we need to learn how to transform that empathy into compassion so that we move into more positive emotions. And then it absolutely, it protects you. It's like, I, you know, I, I train therapists, I train master's level students, and I say, this is your protection suit, is your compassion. That numbing yourself actually requires a ton of energy and will burn you out. But if you can learn to truly care and be vulnerable, to, vulnerable enough to let yourself feel it and then feel your love for that person, you won't, you won't ever experience burnout. Yeah. And I think it's being vulnerable and being able to be self-compassionate. Mm -hmm. The reality for many people are in the giving professions is, frankly, many of them are damaged, right? And what's happening is they want to assuage their own pain and they think it's assuaged by showing love and caring for others, but oftentimes they're not dealing with their own pain. And so I think a critical part <laughs> is self-care mm. and being compassionate to yourself. And when you can do that, uh, then you can really embrace the others and feel all of the positive energy. 
uh, certainly within uh, the medical profession. And here at Stanford, if you look at the levels of burnout, I mean, a huge, huge percentage of medical students are on antidepressants. Mm -hmm. A huge percentage of physicians here are in therapy or on medication or are going to retire because the, the burden for them oftentimes is so heavy. Uh, and it's, it's because of this. And sometimes you also, and this is, maybe I can just comment on this, mindfulness, this compassion training, does not solve the problem of an unfair system that you work in. You know, if every day you're traumatized and are at war, essentially, yes, it can take care of some of these issues, but that daily burden, uh, and, and this is in some ways part of the problem too is, uh, you know, if you're in poverty, you're going to school, if there are too many kids in the class, if you have disruptive kids, if you have bullies, if you don't have very good teachers, if you're, you have a home life with alcohol or drug abuse or violence or mental illness, you know, how are you expected with all the mindfulness in the world to overcome this? Or if you're in a hostile work environment or, you know, you're overburdened. I mean, look, I'm probably the lowest paid neurosurgeon. And, I, and, and, and I, I, that's true, actually. But the reason is, is because I don't care how many patients they tell me I'm supposed to see. I don't care how many RVUs, which is our relative value, is how we get paid. My job is to be a doctor. If it takes an hour, it takes an hour. If it takes two hours, it takes two hours. Uh, versus them saying, geez, every patient should only take 15 minutes. How is that even possible, right? And it's because you have a structural system that profoundly is not fair. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem with medicine today. So. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. I need to do a jargon check. I have read that Brene Brown says we are hardwired for struggle. And you've just shared with us that we're hardwired for compassion. So while we have both of you here, could I get an idea of the neurophysiology of hardwiring and the neuroscience of hardwiring and how that saying kind of works with our nerves? Here's the thing is, yes, on some level, stress is good for you. Struggle is good for you because that's how we grow. That's how we gain wisdom. That's how we gain insights. And actually, with the right amount of stress, that's how you succeed. The problem is when it's chronic and it's overwhelming and you don't have time to recharge your batteries. You don't have time to have self-awareness. And that's, so she is absolutely correct in that, but she's not talking about excessive struggle. She's talking about reasonable struggle. And so I think that's the difference. And the wonderful thing is when you do struggle and you succeed and you're able to overcome, it does strengthen you and actually makes you happier because you realize these abilities you have. But it's when every time you try, you fail. Every time you're knocked down, you know, that's, that's I think, uh, where the problem lies. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I was wondering, you know, we were talking about vulnerability and, you know, being in your truth and everything. But if, let's say, you more than anything, you, you want to relate to other people and feel, you know, the community, 
and and but if you're if you speak honestly, there's so much, there's a lot of feeling of um, unworthiness or fear or sadness and um, and it's such a turnoff. Mm. <laughs> and you know and you know some people say, well, fake it till you make it or whatever you know. Or I'm just wondering, you know, that kind of like that gap between who you would like to be mm. and you know getting out of the way so you really can appreciate the people in front of you and yeah. where you're in the where you're feeling very stuck yeah it's a great question and uh, you know a lot of times when i teach people what you practice grows stronger and they're like well i'm feeling depressed and i don't want to keep practicing that cuz then i don't want to grow that mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so what's interesting is that when you bring the depression into your kind awareness, into this mindful, compassionate awareness, it's actually a different neural pathway. It's not the rumination and the depression where you're stuck, it's awareness of depression. And that's a completely different pathway. So one is you don't have to fake it till you make it. Um, you actually have to just shift how you're relating to the depression. So that answers that one piece. The second piece is when to be vulnerable. Right? And there's that dialectic between being authentic and also recognizing maybe when it's not safe or not appropriate to be vulnerable. And I think, again, that's where mindfulness really supports me in, in, in feeling into a situation and how much am I ready to expose. You don't need to kind of throw everything out on the line. It's, I think some containment is good. I think where you really want to make sure is safe is inside here inside your own heart so that you can be fully honest and fully vulnerable with however you're feeling. Yeah. Thank you for Thank that question. You. Yes, sir. Is this common teaching that uh, pain is created when you're not accepting reality as it is? But uh, I'm kind of struggling with uh, the acceptance part where I'm looking for also agency mm. because if you're just accepting, where is that driving force that makes you kind of act and we know it in our life like that's usually the force that drives us every day yeah so how do you make those both uh, kind of uh, uh, consolidate how yeah. do you consolidate them both that's great well it's, it's a wonderful question so he said you know when we when we um, resist something it creates pain and and what I would say is that when we resist pain it creates suffering and from the mindfulness lens, pain and suffering are different. So pain is a part of life. Pain is constant. We're all gonna get sick. We're all gonna grow old. We're all gonna die. And so is everyone we love. Sorry, that's, that's part of the Buddhist teaching. <laughs> um, but it's true. So we have pain. How much we resist the pain will determine how much we suffer. Okay, so pain is a constant. So there's this wonderful mathematical equation that Shinzen Young taught me. It's suffering, S, equals pain times resistance. And however much I resist the pain, I'm going to suffer. So that's the teaching. But then your question comes in that's so important. But if I don't resist the pain and I just accept everything, how am I ever going to change? Right? How are we ever going to change the injustice in the world? How am I ever going to change in my personal life? And so here's the key for me. Acceptance does not mean passive resignation. Acceptance means you see clearly what's happening so that you can respond effectively. In fact, the word mindfulness means to see clearly. So we want to see clearly 
so we can respond effectively. And what I've found in my life is when I'm, when I'm resisting a situation or I'm kind of forcing it or pushing it, that actually doesn't help resolve it. But when I finally let go and I trust in something bigger and I see it clearly, then all sorts of support and resolutions come. I would also say that one of the challenges for us too is there's a difference between wanting something or striving for something and the goal. Suffering also is when you don't achieve the goal you think you should achieve. And so you sit there and you say, I failed, I didn't do this. But the key is not to be attached to the goal, the key is to be attached to the path. And I think that's where a lot of people, uh, because you know there are always gonna be things that we're not, they don't end how we wish them to end. But if we respond and we do the best we can within the context of who we are and our resources, et cetera, and then say, well, that's okay, I, I, I tried. Because, you know, especially type A people, and, uh, you know, you're always going, I want to do this and I want to do that. But one of the things, you know, I've recognized is that's not going to happen. And I, there's some things that do work out, and I'm thankful. And this, in some ways, is the nature of equanimity, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's wonderful to have these, I did it, this is fantastic, I'm empowered, you know, I can change the world. But this is not where you learn, and that's always transitory. And the other part is the down parts, where we're in pain, we're suffering, we're struggling. But when we distance it with time, what is the reality? You didn't learn the great things here, you learned them here. And in fact, this response to this other question earlier, which was struggle, okay? But in the face of this struggle, having this evenness of temperament, not getting lost in either extreme, and understand typically comes back to the mean. So unfortunately, I'm sorry, but I think we're out of time. Is that, will you forgive me? Thank you all so much. Shauna, it's been such a joy. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.